Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. Why did she stay? She could have just left. What was she thinking? She's better off without him. I would never put myself in that situation. We hear this all the time when it comes to a person trapped in an abusive relationship by force, manipulation, and control. Unless it has happened to you or a loved one, you will never truly understand the isolation a domestic violence victim endures. So today, I'm here to switch it up. Because the quote-unquote criminal is in fact the victim of this case. On the evening of December 12th of 1985, a little after midnight, authorities received a call from Donna Yaklich at her rural ranch house in Avondale, Colorado. She told authorities that she was asleep when she heard what sounded like pounding coming from outside. She went to check it out and found her husband, Dennis Yaklich, lying dead on the driveway. Investigators didn't need an autopsy to see his cause of death was the result of multiple gunshot wounds. Dennis was a narcotics officer, so he often put himself in dangerous situations and even went undercover to get the job done when needed. At the time, it seemed clear to investigators that this was some kind of retaliation. They were correct about one thing. It was retaliation. But this murder has nothing to do with him being in narcotics. I mean, I see why they would jump to that conclusion given his job, but there are a lot of other possible reasons too. Let's actually investigate first, maybe. Yeah, I agree. Like, there should be a few possibilities before you assume it has anything to do with his actual work. Tell us a little more about Dennis and Donna. Donna and Dennis met in April of 1977 at the age of 22 and 30 years old. They moved fast because only after a few months, Donna decided to move in to help him raise his three children, ages 9, 11, and 12, as well as her three-year-old son. She planned on staying with him only for the summer in an effort to get his kids settled back home after they had been staying with his mother. However, she ended up building a strong bond with the children during that time. She felt like she not only needed them, but she was the mother figure they needed. Their mother and Dennis's late wife Barbara had passed away unexpectedly earlier that year in February. They needed her support and guidance as they were still grieving her loss. A month into living with Dennis, he began to scare Donna as he slowly became more and more mentally and physically abusive towards her. She broke it off a few times, but always went back to him and the children. Donna herself grew up in an abusive home, so to her, this is what home felt like. He began to use tactics like threatening to kill her and those she loved if she tried to leave him again. All she could do was try to keep him happy and be perfect in his eyes, so she obeyed him, took care of the kids, and took care of the house. And it didn't help that Dennis was a well-respected police officer. They knew how abusive he was, and they knew he had anger issues, but they also knew how reliable and needed he was in their department. He would even brag to Donna that with his career in narcotic operations, it gave him access to federal law enforcement, meaning he could find anyone, anywhere, including her. Donna began to feel helpless because she had no one to run to, and she blamed herself for not leaving in the beginning when the abuse first started. She started to think irrational thoughts of suicide and possibly homicide, anything to escape and end it all. Oh man, she must have really felt trapped. And the kids make it so much more complicated because most of them aren't biologically hers, so she wouldn't be able to take them with her to protect them too. Right, and I'm sure that he made her feel like she was responsible for them and guilt-tripped her with that. A lot of abusers hide what they do to their families behind closed doors. It kind of sounds like Dennis was blatant about it. 
the cops he worked with liked him anyway. Well, Dennis was respected by his peers, but that didn't necessarily mean they enjoyed being around him. His colleagues admitted that he used abusive tactics on the job and dreaded working with him because of the way that he conducted himself. Even going as far as to say they were often left cleaning up after Dennis. Despite that, they knew they needed Dennis and he was someone they could rely on to always be there when they called. He was willing to take the lead and got results, despite his unethical tactics. But to his community, he was a mean and brutal man who they complained about often to his superiors, but were ignored and chopped up to be just rumors. Dennis knew how to intimidate those around him, not just by personality, but also looks. He was 6'5 and weighed 280 pounds. He was a weightlifter that took steroids to maintain his massive muscles. He was known to get into fights with officers, and even though they weren't small themselves, his brutality terrified them, so much that they threatened to shoot him if he didn't calm down. Not even a grown man of similar stature felt comfortable going up against Dennis. They knew they had no chance in a fight with him, so imagine how Donna must have felt. Jesus, he's huge! With everyone so afraid of him, they aren't going to stick up for Donna and become his target themselves. Yeah, they probably look at what he's done to her and think if he could do that to someone he loves, he would have no problem coming after me. Speaking of that, what happened to his first wife exactly? Okay, so whenever you're dealing with a person capable of physically harming their current spouse, the question is always, is this the first time they've done something like this? Well, on February 14th of 1977, Barbara's 12-year-old daughter remembers her mother seeing her off to school and appeared to be just fine. One hour later, Barbara was pronounced dead, which was later determined to be from a lacerated liver that caused internal bleeding. Dennis was the only one there at the time, but he told the coroner that she had passed out and he tried to administer CPR, but because he was panicking, he must have caused the injury to her by accident. The detective who was assigned to the case was not notified for two hours, and during that time, Barbara was taken to Parkview Hospital by ambulance. The sketchy part is, the ambulance company that was called to transport her was owned by Dennis's superior's brother. The lead detective would later share that he reluctantly accepted that there was no examination of the crime scene throughout the investigation, and he had no explanation as to what happened to Barbara. He said, and I quote, There's so many holes in this case, it's like Swiss cheese. They did request for Dennis to take a lie detector test, but he refused to do so. So they let it go. Questions remain unanswered and no charges were ever filed. The case may have been swept under the rug, but that didn't stop the community from believing Dennis killed Barbara and his colleagues covered for him. Donna would later share that Dennis would threaten her frequently, saying that she would end up just like Barbara. Oh, good gods. Her liver? Really? You don't do CPR on someone's liver, dumbass. It looks to me like he killed his first wife and then didn't even have to try that hard to cover it up. Yeah, whether it was by accident or not, he killed her and I'm sure it was not an accident. No wonder Donna believed his threats. He had already done it once. He could do it again. He most likely abused Barbara throughout their whole marriage, too. We may not know the details of what happened to Barbara during her life married to Dennis, but we do know the abuse Donna endured while Dennis was alive and well. Now, domestic violence is an extremely sensitive topic, but it's a topic that deserves awareness. This is your trigger warning, Conjurers. It's okay to skip ahead if you need to. Okay, here we go. The abuse Dennis inflicted on Donna, who was only 5'7 and 130 pounds, included slapping, kicking, choking, putting his gun to her head and threatening to kill her, as well as pushing her down the stairs. 
He would do things like trapping her in the bedroom and turning off the lights to beat and sexually assault her so she wouldn't know which direction the blows were coming from. He broke her mentally by threatening to kill her on a daily basis. She never knew day to day if this would be her last. That, in addition to the physical abuse, was enough to debilitate anyone. Though the abuse took place behind closed doors, several witnesses would come forward to share what they remember seeing. The witnesses included her mailman, who had noticed bruises all over Donna's face, and the repairman, who had been called several times to the home to fix the phones Dennis ripped out of the wall. While repairing those phones, he noticed various bruises on Donna's neck and cheek. He said, and I quote, They were so prominent that they were noticeable at a glance. He also said he remembers it so vividly because I see a lot of things like that in low-income areas in the projects, but I was shocked to see a cop's wife all bruised up like she was. These witnesses were vital during the investigation, but Donna also cried out several times to her and Dennis's peers. He didn't even try to hide what he was doing to her. That's so horrible. He was walking around like he was God himself. She was so brave to try and reach out for help. Agreed. Unfortunately, it didn't do Donna much good. Stuff will take it from here after this short break. In 1982, Donna reached out to Dennis's close work colleague and told him Dennis threw her down the stairs and was out of control. The advice he gave her was to leave immediately, but Donna was too fearful that he would kill her father. Dennis had told her multiple times that when he did kill her family, he would start with her father. His colleague knew Donna feared for her life, and he took his concerns to his and Dennis's supervisor, but they refused to help her. He was told it was none of their business and to leave it alone. The supervisor's lack of sympathy showed Donna that she couldn't rely on the police because Dennis controlled them too. I wish Dennis's colleagues would have went above the supervisor, but I doubt he was willing to go up against his entire department for Donna, which is super unfortunate, but also not surprising. I'm surprised he even mentioned it to the supervisor at all. The blue wall of silence and everything. That's true. And I'm sure that even though that was the last time she called the police, that wasn't the last person she confided in. It wasn't. In November of 1983, Donna visited a psychologist who also failed her. Donna had gone in for guidance on how to gain the courage to safely leave Dennis. She spent most of that appointment uncontrollably sobbing with little to no helpful advice or resources from the therapist, other than to just leave him. After that appointment, she never went back to see her again. I'm sorry, but who gave this girl a psychology degree? What therapist doesn't know the most danger you can put yourself in with an abuser is when you decide to just leave? Donna needs to know she's protected. As a therapist, provide those resources to her. At the very least, Donna needed help coming up with a plan. That woman should find a different career. Maybe a police officer is is where she needs to be. (laughs) Anyways, what's next? Well, a few months later, in February of 1984, Donna did escape and fled to a woman's shelter in Denver. But that escape was short-lived. Like most abusers, Dennis convinced her to come home by promising to become a changed man. She ended up telling the counselors at the shelter she was moving out of state, when she was in fact going back to Dennis. This was something she would come to regret sooner rather than later. I just want to point out something before people start thinking, why would she go back? Most women in domestic violence situations often go back. This happens all the time. What she did isn't completely out of the norm. So true. 
That life is familiar. She knew what to expect, not to mention she was probably torn up about leaving the kids behind to take the abuse in her place. Leaving with no support or resources to start a new life is scary and extremely difficult. It makes sense that she went back, even if it's sad. The way domestic violence works often has the victim thinking maybe they're the problem, which is often a tactic that the abusers use to trap them. It's so sad. And one year later, Donna began asking several people for advice because she believed Dennis was planning on killing her. No one came to her rescue, and no one pitied her. So she went with what she believed to be her only option. She decided to go to Dennis's friend and ask if he knew anyone who could get rid of Dennis for her. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Why would she ask his friend to help get rid of him? Listen. She asked him because she figured that friend valued Dennis so much, he would intervene and tell Dennis her plan. She was counting on this resulting in Dennis being so enraged, he would finally just do it already and bring her torture to an end. She had nothing to lose at this point. Either he would end her or he would leave her. Either way, she would be free. This friend did nothing, just like everyone else before them. This may not have ended the abuse, but Dennis's reputation was slowly crumbling around him as people discovered his true colors. Donna wanted so badly to leave. She considered suicide, but the thought of leaving her son behind only for him to endure the same treatment as Barbara's children was enough to stop her from going through with it. Her children were her only will to live at this point, and she was willing to suffer to protect them. Imagine being so tired of being abused that you would rather just hurry up and end it. She's tired of being on guard every day. She's tired of not knowing what day might be her last. It's like sitting on death row in what should be your safe space. Thank God her child gave her the will to stay alive. However, this isn't always the case. That's true. Well, in May of 1985, Donna's mother contacted the Pueblo Sheriff Department with disturbing news. One of Donna's stepchildren contacted her father to inform them that Dennis pushed Donna through a window. Officers responded to the call, but once again didn't bother to do their job. You see, when they showed up, Dennis told them that that sound wasn't a window breaking, it was just a bull hitting the floor. They didn't bother to check Donna out for bruises or check the windows. Instead, they stood around chatting about other things, like the gym Dennis was building on the property. They didn't bother to check the windows, you know, the reason they were there, but they did take a tour of his new gym. What makes matters worse is they decided to drop the alleged incident altogether. Why even show up to do nothing? You can literally talk to him about his new gym in the office. You are there to do your job. Bare minimum, you check out the victim. This is unfortunately so common. I can't even count how many times I've heard stories of police being called to investigate potential domestic violence, but because it's a fellow cop, they take their buddy's word for it and never even check. It's sickening. I really fear for those that think people in occupations where they supposedly serve and protect the community are all good people. You can never tell. Eight long months later, on December 12, 1985, Donna confided in a neighbor about the abuse she had endured for her and Dennis's entire relationship. Edward Greenwell saw the desperation in Donna's eyes and knew he had to do something to help her. So that evening, him and his younger brother Charles waited for Dennis to get home from work. They met him in his driveway and killed him with a shotgun. 
Both men would later make a deal with the district attorney, Gus Sandstrom, in exchange for their testimony against Donna. They pled to second-degree murder, with Edward receiving a sentence of 30 years and Charles a sentence of 20 years. The abuse was very apparent, and even if no one documented specific incidents, they knew who Dennis truly was. You would think this would have had an impact on how the district attorney charged Donna for the murder of Dennis. The DA made claims that Donna conspired to kill Dennis for insurance money. They claimed if he was abusing her, it wasn't enough for her to fear for her life. Gus would later say, quote, if she had shot him herself, there would be no issue, end quote. The point he was trying to make is if she killed him herself, she could claim self-defense. But earlier, he had argued she wanted him dead for the money. His argument was very inconsistent and all over the place. I think the prosecution is missing the fact that this man was physically and mentally torturing this woman on a daily basis. Yeah, they seem to miss that one. The reality of the situation is Donna was a battered woman. Yes, she wanted her husband dead, but she didn't have it in her to do it. She wasn't him. She wasn't abusive and cruel. Like most people in domestic violence situations, they love and hate their spouse at the same time. One could argue if she had mustered up the courage to pull a gun on Dennis and decided she couldn't do it, the repercussions of those actions would be lethal for her. In so many ways, Dennis had made her believe he was invincible and unstoppable, and everyone else in their life had reinforced that notion by doing nothing to stop him. Not even his death would save her, it seemed. It turned out the DA was another friend of Dennis. The entire trial took place in the jurisdiction of the Pueblo Sheriff's Office, the same sheriffs who turned the other cheek to all of Donna's claims of abuse over the years. The trial was never going to be in Donna's favor. They wanted to conceal their own part in the situation and not take accountability for Donna's abuse or Dennis's death. The DA also had a political agenda because at the time of the trial, he was actively involved in an election. When it was time for Donna to be convicted, several jurors believed she was innocent, but Pueblo PD was quite intimidating and they didn't want to get on their bad side. They felt pressured to reach a verdict quickly and convicted her on first-degree murder. They believed that because of the abuse Donna endured at the hands of her husband, the judge would have some empathy for her and give her no more than eight years. Everyone in this case was friends with Dennis, and all of them knew he was a piece of shit, and yet they still wanted to victim blame? It's classic. I wish more people spoke up for her. Donna's parole officer was on her side, telling the judge, and I quote, I really felt that whether they did what she wanted done to have Dennis killed, or whether Dennis found out and killed her, it didn't matter. She was at a point in her life where either was satisfactory, end quote. She recommended alternatives outside of prison. The judge, however, provided a familiar response Donna had received time and time again. She should have just left. He completely ignored everyone's recommendations and sentenced her to 40 years in prison. In his mind, all of this started with Donna and she was the one to blame. Dr. Lenore Walker, who evaluated and counseled Donna, shared after her sentencing, and I quote, He was using the court and a woman's life to express his own ignorance of a battered woman's plight, end quote. Several jurors wrote in letters to the judge pleading with him for a lighter sentence for Donna as well, but the judge responded with that they must not allow their personal sympathy to influence their decision. 
This didn't stop them, though, as they continued to fight for her early release. I am like 99% sure the judge was also close friends with Dennis because what the hell? That or he's an abuser himself and has sympathy only for his own kind. That is another thought. (laughs) So did she ever get an early release? Donna was an outstanding citizen to society before and after Dennis. In prison, she avoided conflict, adapted to the lifestyle, and did all she could to better herself and rebuild her confidence. She attended the college programs, earned her associate's degree, later earning her bachelor's in psychology. She took from her experience and joined programs that helped other domestic violence victims and prevented other women from heading down the same path. She was in computer refurbishing programs and the prison fire response team. Donna was unstoppable after Dennis's death, and her goal was to help women like her take down the blue wall of silence. Despite her circumstances, she remained a positive light for those around her. Donna shared, quote, As for my life now, being in prison is similar to the prison I put myself in while I was married to Dennis. However, prison is also what you make of it. So I've enrolled in educational programs, had therapy, and also taken care of myself. Things I should have done in society. End quote. Donna was released in October of 2005 after serving 20 years of her sentence. So why do they stay? Why don't they tell someone? Why don't they ask for help? If today's case doesn't give you the answer to these questions, I don't know what will. Instead of placing judgment on the victims, understand that domestic violence isn't just physical, it's mental, it's draining, it's debilitating. Their life isn't a movie. They don't call the police who show up and arrest the bad guy. It's not as simple as getting in your car and just leaving. Donna reached out several times to law enforcement, friends, family, and peers, but her cries were left unheard. The victim in today's case is clearly Donna Yaklich. She didn't get the justice she deserved in the end, but she did escape the hell she was living in. The National Center on Domestic Violence, Trauma, and Mental Health provides training, support, consultation to advocates, mental health and substance abuse providers, legal professionals, and policymakers. They work to improve agency and system-level responses to survivors and their children. Their work is survivor-defined and rooted in principles of social justice. If you're a victim of domestic violence or know someone who is, go to www.nationalcenterdvtraumamh.org or call 312-726-7020 for more information. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode was done by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week, and you can also find us on TikTok. Sham, what's our conjure tip this week? Domestic violence is first and foremost extremely scary for the victim, but it also affects everyone who loves them. I want to share with you some ways to support a peer in a domestic violence situation without putting yourself in danger. First of all, acknowledge that their situation is difficult, scary, and brave of them to regain control from. Do not judge their decisions and refuse to criticize them or guilt them over a choice they make. Remember, they're mentally drained. And this one's tough, but remember that you cannot rescue them. And that decision about their lives are up for them to make or not make. However, you could help them create a safety plan. Please encourage them to report any abuse, even if they don't want to press charges. 
You can end up saving a DV victim's life just by believing them, supporting them, and guiding them. It's so important if you suspect someone you care about may be in an abusive situation to remind them that you love them and that you are there if they need you no matter what. Their abuser may try to convince them that they have no one. Make sure they know that that isn't true. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.